0: In the early 90s, a genre called shoegaze came out of the UK. It might have made your ears bleed, but you loved every second of it. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune.
2: And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Today, Greg and I dive into the influential shoegazer genre. We've also got a review of the latest from outcast rapper Big Boy. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now to ask the critics some questions. So
1: don't ask me no questions, and I won't tell you no lies. So don't ask me about my business, and I won't tell you goodbye. That's
2: right. Craig, we thought we would kick off the first show of 2013, By uh, having our listeners ask us some questions, we get voicemail and email and all sorts of social networking missives all year long. We thought it would be fun to start the new year by answering some questions live on air. Here is Mark Shadell from Chicago
0: leaving us a voicemail.
3: Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Mark from Chicago. And I'd like to know how you decide which albums you can review on the show each week. Thank you.
0: We also got an email from John in Lexington, South Carolina, who had a related question. Yes, Jim and Greg, how many times do you have to listen to an album before you feel you can fairly critique it? It seems to me that part of the enjoyment of a song comes from anticipating melodies and song changes while you're listening to it, and you can only do that if you're somewhat familiar with a song. Greg, how about if I take the first question and you
2: take the second? Sounds good. All right, so how do we choose albums? I tell you, it is you and me talking every week with the Sound Opinions production staff. I think that there are uh, Senate committee meetings that are less (laughs) contentious than some of our talks. We're wearing two hats, okay? People, I think, forget we are journalists. What is news? News is stuff that people are talking about. So sometimes there are releases that are so big, we know. Many, many people are going to be talking about them. We want to be part of that conversation. People will say, why did you waste my time listening to you review Rihanna? People are talking about Rihanna. We'll listen to Rihanna so you don't have to, okay? We are also critics, and we are balancing this stuff that is big news with stuff that we are truly excited about. And I don't mean that we're going to gush positively necessarily. We might be excited about art that is troubling. This is us as critics saying, this may not be dinner table conversation, but we want to introduce it to you. That's why we'll review an album like *The Coup*. So it's this constant balancing act, talking with our producers, seeing what's right for the mix in each show, seeing what we are most excited to talk about, what people perhaps are most eager to hear about, and uh, and you know, believe it or not, we listen a lot to people
0: writing in and calling into the show. So let's take on John's question about how many times we listen. Now, I don't think there's a finite answer to this, but I do think, you know, the answer would have to start with multiple times. I think it's more important as to how you listen to it. I try to live with an album over several days, at least before I get a handle on it and start writing about it. It's context. Sometimes you can get a different feel for an album when you're listening to it after a burnout day and you got it on on headphones in a darkened room at 3 in the morning, versus zipping down Lakeshore Drive in your car and you got it in your car stereo. Mm-hmm. You've got two totally different angles on it. I try to listen to it over a decent sound system where I can get the details of that record. And I do try to just put it on in the kitchen on the boombox while I'm washing dishes and something will jump out at me. That tells me a little different piece of information about that music as well. So it's more a case of, of trying to make that record a part of your life for two, three, four, five days if possible and then get a critical take on it. Now we've got a voicemail from Nathan Merrill in Chicago.
3: Hey guys, just calling, had a quick question regarding any recommendations you might have on how to heighten the experience when listening to albums, non-pharmacologically, of course. And I'm just curious, you know, if you had any tips or tricks on uh, how to make digital files, things like that, really shine the way the artist intended. Uh, Currently just plugging stuff into like an iPad or iPhone and listening that way. And it's not terrible, but just want to know if you had any recommendations on uh, how you might make that experience a little
0: bit better. Thanks for that question, uh, Nathan. We're going to take it on from a standpoint of how we listen to music, and it's not necessarily on iPod or iPhone. Digitally, I'll listen to music on my personal computer in my office through a pair of Harman Kardon speakers. They get fairly decent sound when you get high bit rate downloads. But I still prefer, i got to say, you know listening to a compact disc on a decent stereo system in my office is still the best way to get that music experience. For convenience sake, I listen to the music digitally. But when I really want to sink my teeth into a record, I'll put it on a decent stereo system. Nathan, by now you must
2: realize we don't have the luxury all the time of the highest fidelity listening experience, washing the dishes in the bathroom, taking a shower in the morning, okay? Mm -hmm. We do have a good friend in Chicago, music writer Bob Gendron. He's been on the show before to talk to us about high fidelity. So we posed your question to him.
4: There's several options that you could do to try to improve some digital sound, um, the most obvious of which would be to upgrade your headphones. I'd suggest something made by a company called Grado. There's a pair called SR60i that are around $80 that are really good. You could also, if you really want to be a big spender, there's a company called Audizy that makes headphones that would literally change your life. They cost about $2,000, but again, they're um, they're pretty insane. The other thing you could do, which is a little more upscale and maybe impractical, depending on what kind of portability you needed, is you could always buy a headphone amplifier which basically does what an amplifier in a stereo does. They're pretty compact, but again, you'd have to carry that around. There's a company called Audio Engine that makes some relatively inexpensive ones that are, I think, around, to me, about $125 and $150. That would definitely give you a lot more of the sound staging and the depth and the, uh, the insight into the musical perspective that you probably
2: would want. That was Bob Gendron, copy editor for Music Direct and a contributor to the Chicago Tribune. Hope that helps you, Nathan, and uh, maybe for Christmas next year we can all get some $2,000 headphones. (laughs) Last question comes from Chris Orr in Corvallis, Oregon. Hey, guys, I know this might sound cheesy, but my girlfriend and I are looking for a good song to sing and play on ukulele. We both love music from all genres and would love to hear some of your suggestions. Greg, I got more hate mail, I think, than I've ever gotten, and that's saying <laughs> something, when I wrote a piece arguing that there was no such thing as good ukulele.
0: So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn this over to you, okay? Well, Jim, you're missing the boat because uh, the uke is back big time, my friend. I mean, uh, Meryl Garbus of Toon Yards, a former Sound Opinions guest, thrashes Love, one as well as I've ever seen. Your friend Pearl Jam's Eddie Vedder put out a ukulele album uh, a year or two ago. Paul McCartney has been paying tribute to his late Beatles bandmate George Harrison by playing Harrison's Something on ukulele at these big stadium shows.
1: Something in
0: the way she
1: moves Attracts me like no other lover Something in the way she woos me I don't want to leave her now Well, you know i believe leaving now
0: People may not realize this, but uh, Harrison was a huge ukulele fan. He had a wonderful collection of them, yeah. and as a gesture of friendship would often give them to people he met. I,
2: you can call me a <laughs> eucophobic I just don't think anything is better on four strings than it would be on six.
0: Now, our crack crew did some research on this, and we talked to some uh, ukulele lovers who said that it's... Best to avoid songs with big choruses, simple melodies are best, piano songs with walking bass lines really work. And not surprisingly, McCartney's name came up a lot in terms of if you want to just start playing some pop tunes on the ukulele, you know, go to the Paul McCartney catalog. I I always associate the ukulele with people sitting around in a kind of a casual atmosphere, you know, on a porch or around a campfire, just singing songs that are really melodic, and I thought about the music of Weezer, specifically Island of the Sun. Come on. I mean, is that not a campfire song? Come on, Jim. Hip, hip, you know, let's go. Let's start yeah, singing. Here, let's yeah, go. Come on. I'm not with you. can do you. it. I think ukulele when brings you're on an a element holiday, of kitsch into you know? anything it touches, you know? <laughs> So do you have a question for us critics? Give us a call at 888-859-1800 or email us at interact at soundopinions.org.
2: sound opinions and that is the song only shallow by my bloody valentine from its 1991 album loveless that song and that album is really the hallmark of shoegaze a genre we thought deserved the sound opinions dissection treatment We've probably mentioned the term shoegaze or shoegazer probably three or four dozen times (laughs) a year for the last five or six years. It's a period of rock history and a sound that is still very much au courant in current bands taking their inspiration from this period in England in the late 80s and early 90s. I'm going to start by talking a little bit about the name and the sound, and then you'll give us an historical context, and we'll hopefully take listeners through what was worth celebrating about the shoegazer moment? Let's start with that weird name, first of all, right? The English press from the beginning was rather cynical and snarky about this new movement of young bands circa 88, 89, 1990, just before grunge really exploded in the U.S., this scene in England. It was of quiet, thoughtful young musicians, many of them art school educated, and they were not very vociferous on stage they stood and they looked at their shoes while turning out this amazing noise there was a big inspiration from bands in the U.S. like Dinosaur Jr. and Sonic Youth which had preceded the shoegazer bands in the U.K. by five or, or more years in the middle of the indie rock 80s in the U.S. but there was a little bit more attention to history all of this is intertwined with the entire lineage of psychedelia in British rock and American rock. You know, it wasn't just this moment in San Francisco in 67. It was an approach to the studio and an approach to making this massive noise on stage that, you know, you didn't have to be a great front man, an Iggy Pop or something. You know, you could just concentrate on letting the noise do the talking for you. That was what shoegaze was about
0: sonically. But where did it come from historically? Jim, you're absolutely right. These bands were students of rock history. They were coming at it from a tradition that extends back several decades, I think, to to look at the roots of where shoegaze was coming from. You know, this whole notion of looking at the guitar as not something that was strictly designed to play blues-based chord progressions or notes or have that sort of feel. It was a hunk of wire and wood, and it was essentially a sound machine. And I think you go back to... uh, those records by the Velvet Underground in the mid to late 60s as a template for a lot of what was going on. Oh, just like Sister Ray said, with an arm. There's a lineage you know, New York City, Velvet Underground, to Sonic Youth, to the no-wave bands with Glenn Branca, stacking those guitars on top of each other. You mentioned Dinosaur Jr. out of Massachusetts in the 80s as an indie rock precursor. A lot of those proto-punk bands out of Detroit, the Stooges and the MC5, when they were doing some of their more free-form experiments. I would even cite the 8 Miles High era Birds out of the West Coast California scene as an influence on this sound. ¶¶
1: Greg,
2: though, 1989 was a particular watershed year because you had a lot of critics in London and in New York saying everything that could be done with two guitars, Mm -hmm. bass, and drums has been done. Guitars are passe. And in... The indie rock American scene, you had guitar bands very much saying, you know, wait a minute, guitars aren't
0: done. We can still do new things with them. And then the Brits
2: picked it up, and that's really where Shoegaze is
0: coming in. Yes, you know, in the 80s, you started to see elements of this bubbling into this dream pop sound. that was, again, a term coined by the U.K. press. Groups like A.R. Kane and the Cocteau Twins having this sort of dreamy, atmospheric sound with the way they were using guitars. Yeah. And the whole overdriven guitar sound of the Jesus and Mary chain, mm-hmm. or even the psychedelic post-punk of somebody like Spaceman 3 or Chameleons, you started to see this bubbling out. So coinciding with what was going on in the U.K. at the time, you had the grunge scene out of the Pacific Northwest. You had the Madchester scene in Manchester in the U.K. with Stone Roses. Happy Mondays, Charlatans UK, combining dance elements with this sort of trippy psychedelia. So you had this flowering, the first real flowering, I think commercially, of punk music on a commercial spectrum post-punk, non-mainstream approach to record-making and songwriting. And I think a lot of the shoegaze bands were very much influenced by punk. You cannot say that enough. Even though they were using these long-form guitar parts, they weren't really playing solos as such. They were orchestrating the guitars to create these enveloping atmospheres. That's right, Greg. It can't be overstated that while the records may occasionally seem
2: dreamy and trance-inducing, hypnotic, to see these bands live, and we're going to talk about the key members of this shoegaze class later, uh, was often overwhelming. It was like, sheer the top of your head (laughs) off with some of the loudest music you've ever heard and you have to leave with your ears bleeding and you've never been happier. Let's talk about making the albums because there are two consistence in most of the shoegaze story. Number one is Creation Records, started by a Scotsman named Alan McGee, a great character who we've talked about in the past on Sound Opinions. And the other is his favorite engineer, Alan Mulder. Alan Mulder would become a key figure because he worked with all of the key, really important British shoegaze bands. Swerve Driver, My Bloody Valentine, Ride, and then he would go on to bring that influence to America with bands like The Smashing Pumpkins and Nine Inch Nails. I think he was the real catalyst, the line, if there was one to be drawn, between the American alternative scene and what had proceeded in Britain. Now, shoegazer was a derisive term. The English critics were throwing this at a lot of these bands, saying, you know, they're no fun to watch. Another term that got added later on was the scene that celebrates itself. (laughs) Alan McGee was also picked on by the British press. Now, Simon Reynolds, one of the celebratory critics of many of these bands, he did have a thing against creation. He said it was all retro, it was all nostalgia. He was pushing for something different. He did champion one of the bands above and beyond, and that was My Bloody Valentine. We will return to our genre dissection of Shoegaze after a short break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX with a look at some of the key bands of this period. And later in the show, Greg and I will review the new album from Outcasts Big Boy.
0: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Kot and my partner is Jim Birigatis. That's the song I only said from the band My Bloody Valentine. This week on the show, we're looking at the shoegaze movement of the early 1990s in one of our periodic genre dissections, and we left off before the break referring to the U.K. music critic Simon Reynolds, who put out a key book in 1990 called Blissed Out, where he defined what it is about the music that was so appealing. This whole idea... Of transcendence you know which was a big part of psychedelic through oblivion you know the noise would set you free and I think there was a whole sense in the UK at the time a decade long where a lot of UK youth were sick and tired of Thatcherism and Manchester ecstasy and shoegaze oblivion were the ways out the a way of escaping it a way of blanking out what was going on in the world at the time and creating their own world So I think when we talk about this movement in Britain at the time, we've got to start with My Bloody
2: Valentine. Absolutely, Greg. It all starts with My Bloody Valentine. They are the avatar band of the shoegaze movement. We've talked about them and their enduring influence on the show in the past when we did our 1991 retrospective. Uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, that as influential as Nirvana's Nevermind, the 1991 album... By My Bloody Valentine, Loveless, has had every bit as much influence, although it sold probably one one-hundredth yeah. of what Nirvana would sell. And cost ten times more. My Bloody Valentine had been kicking around since the mid-'80s. You know, it was formed by an American kid who wound up growing up in Dublin. His father uh, worked for an international grocery store chain. He finds himself uprooted and a stranger in a strange land and this is a feeling that will permeate all of the music he ever makes very weird in rock history for a band to have wound up so influential where you can so easily dismiss everything it did Pretty much before Loveless, right? You know, there are a bunch of early albums and EPs where My Bloody Valentine is stumbling towards its sound. It's very much a gothic and Mm. Bauhaus-influenced, and there's an awful lead singer, male lead singer early on, and it isn't until the late 80s when they start. A series of experimental EPs that they start to stumble towards a sound that rock critic Dave Sprague once ideally described as part metal machine music and part pet sounds. (laughs) The band leader, Kevin Shields, began taking ecstasy and becoming fascinated with dance culture. He loved this notion of the rough outlines of a sound where the middle was missing. He loved to walk around a busy city like Dublin or New York City at 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and where sometimes there are millions of people thronging the streets, there's nobody there. He liked the emptiness of that sound, and he arrived at this technical innovation of taking a Yamaha digital effects pedal that had a backward reverb envelope setting, and playing his guitar through that, strumming in a very Ramones-like way. It Mm -hmm. all came from the Ramones, all about the downstroke, but he would wrap his little finger around the whammy bar, a relic of the surf era, Mm -hmm. you know, that vibrato. He would... ...move the whammy bar on every stroke of the guitar, which meant his guitar was constantly going in and out of tune. And both guitars in My Bloody Valentine and the bass would mimic that method, and the drums would be the only anchor, and the vocals would be set behind everything else, so that you're almost always straining to listen... What did she say? Mm-hmm. What, what are those lyrics? Yeah. I don't even really know. And so this entire time you're listening to My Bloody Valentine, it's coming in and out of focus. It's almost like the sound of bed spins or seasickness, except it's much more pleasant than that. Here's an example. It's My Bloody Valentine with the song Blown A Wish on Sound Opinions. ¶¶
0: Bloody Valentine with the song Blown a Wish on Sound Opinions. No doubt my Bloody Valentine set the bar mighty high with Loveless in 1991, did a US tour the following year in which they managed to blow Dinosaur Jr off the stage in terms of just volume level. That's pretty hard to do. And then disappeared for for basically two decades. We have not heard the follow-up since even though Kevin Shields keeps promising it. But he left this enormous legacy And uh, there were a number of other bands inspired by what My Bloody Valentine was doing and inspired by the dream pop scene that was in the U.K. at the time, creating their own important work. One of my favorite bands out of that scene was the band Lush. And I think they represent a really important strain of shoegaze. The two main songwriters in the band were women, Mickey Berenier and Emma Anderson. And I think the democratic co-ed approach of a lot of these shoegaze bands cannot be overestimated. It was a very important theme in that movement. You had Belinda Butcher in, in My Bloody Valentine being a key member of that band, and with Berenier and Anderson basically playing the guitars, writing all the songs, singing all the vocals in Lush, they dominated that group. Lush was basically discovered, quote-unquote, by the Cocktail Twins' Robin Guthrie. He saw them in a club, He was very influential on the sound of the movement, and he got them a deal with 4AD Records. Their debut EP in 1989 was a key document in in Shoegaze. It got grave reviews in the U.K. press and really helped create the movement alongside My Bloody Valentine. Their gala compilation, which was basically their three U.K. EPs, was their U.S. debut in 1990. And on that record, a song like Thought Forms with those heavy guitars but still with a pop sensibility underneath, really defined their sound. Here it is on Sound Opinions. by Lush from their 1989 debut on Sound Opinions. Jim, by 1994, they made an album called Split, and you can start to see the pop elements start to overtake the heavy guitars. You know, some of the shoegaze purists were probably saying, wait a minute, what's going on here? Hmm. Well, what's going on here is that shoegaze was colliding head-on with another emerging movement in the U.K. at the time called Britpop. You started to see the emergence of bands like Suede and later on Oasis and Blur starting to take over the scene. Already by 93, 94, shoegaze was being shoved to the margins and a single like Love Life was the response of these bands to that new sound. ¶¶ By 96, Lush was no more. Their drummer, Chris Ackland, tragically committed suicide. The band was done but left behind a small but I think really important legacy.
2: Greg, Shoegaze never had its moment in the sun that it deserved in the U.K. and certainly made almost no impact outside of real record collector geek types Mm -hmm. in the U.S. You had other bands in the movement before it became full-on Britpop. Moose Pale Saints, Swerve Driver, Chapter House, Mm -hmm. Early Catherine Wheel, Early Verve. But the other two bands I think that are really important and whose influence lives on as shoegazer influences today are uh, Slow Dive, who you're going to talk about, and Ride, who I'm going to talk about. Ride were one of the exceptions in terms of not being co-ed. They were four beautiful boys. <laughs> they had met in their native Oxford in essentially what is in America grammar school. Key to this infamous meeting of the two main forces in the band, Mark Gardner and Andy Bell, was a uh, high school production of Greece. Mark Gardner is singing. Greece is the word is the word on stage. <laughs> Andy Bell is part of the band. These guys come together and they begin making music. Bell is from a very musical household, and the only pop albums in it, though, are the Psychedelic Beatles records, Rubber Soul, and Revolver. He falls in love with these sounds, and essentially, right out of high school, they begin jamming, and the ride sound is already there. You take equal parts uh, Tomorrow Never Knows, or Hey Bulldog, Psychedelic Beatles, and add it with a little bit of punk ferocity. And you get where Ride is going. My Bloody Valentine comes along, and they're very impressed with that. They wind up eventually having their first album, Nowhere, mixed by the Valentine's engineer, Alan Mulder. They had recorded it at night, largely, in an abandoned church where they set up a recording studio. They drove the initial engineer crazy. Mulder comes in to mix it, and Ride debuts with What I think is a perfect shoegaze album, number two on the list of enduring masterpieces after Loveless by My Bloody Valentine, nowhere has a picture on it of a giant swell in the middle of the ocean, (laughs) moody, dark blues. I mean, that is the sound, that is the visualization of the sound of Ride. Here is a song from that album by Ride, Dreams Burn Down on Sound Opinions. Burned Down by Ride from the 1990 release, Nowhere on Sound Opinions. We're talking about the shoegaze movement during this episode, and Greg, it's got to be said that as moody and ambient and hypnotic as they were... On record, live, like I said earlier, they would just tear the top of your head off Mm -hmm. because the drummer and bassist played with an entwistle moon ferocity. It was like the who. It was over the top. And I don't care if they were staring at their shoes or celebrating themselves, any of the stuff that the English uh, press derisively threw at them. It was a ferocious live experience and a very inspired one. Greg, as far as I'm concerned, all of the Ride albums are great. Nowhere's a masterful debut. The next effort, Going Blank Again, is almost as strong. They make one album before they break up, 1996. It's sparer, more minimalist. In Between, though, is my second favorite Ride album. In 1994, with... Britpop Ascendant, right? That's the year of Blur and Oasis battling it out. It's the Beatles versus the Stones redux. Blur and Oasis are on the front page of every music publication in the UK. Ride goes to America and they make an album with Rick Rubin called Carnival of Light, which is a wonderful attempt of shoegaze to meet Britpop. There are choirs that haven't been heard since the rolling stones uh, you can't always get what you want there there's orchestration there's this it's a wonderful lush record i don't
1: know where it comes from
2: The group was trying to change with the times. It never really gained any foothold in America and didn't get anywhere near the respect it deserved in the UK and finally breaks up after that last album, Tarantula. And here is the most tragic part. Mark Gardner uh, continues to produce many young bands, and he's he's very respected. You know what Bell is doing? Bell winds up joining Oasis on bass. He was a great guitarist, a great singer, a great songwriter. He winds up as the fill-in bassist, and he continues to work with Liam Gallagher. Mm. In my... Book, this is the equivalent of John (laughs) Lennon having been tapped to join Herman's Hermits. It is just so (laughs) wrong to see this wonderful shoegaze talent frittering away his life for a paycheck with a far more mediocre outfit.
0: A big paycheck, we might add. A big paycheck. Something he never saw in Ride, unfortunately. No, you're absolutely right, Jim. A hugely underrated band. Never really got their due in the same class as My Bloody Valentine. Even more underrated, I think, is uh, Slow Dive, mainly because I think they really didn't sound like any of the other shoegaze bands. Yeah. I think in all of them, you can find traces of punk. There was that drive underneath those layers of guitar. In Slow Dive, it was all about this lulling, lush sound. We talk, We use this term atmosphere or atmospheric a lot in describing these bands slow dive was all atmosphere i mean the slow dive the slow swoon that was their sound and they were experts at it five piece band three guitar players including the core members neil halstead and rachel goswell who met as school kids and had been together ever since in bands uh slow dive was their great achievement and ding me on this one because brian eno plays a role in this music very heavily.
2: He was an influence on all of Shoegaze,
0: and it really is only us trying not to be a cliche that we haven't mentioned him yet. Well, truly, and he, he in fact shows up on their second record, Souvlaki, uh, released in 1993. But I think the whole idea of Eno and those ambient records he started making in the 70s played a big role in Neil Halstead and Rachel Goswell's thinking about how this band should sound, that the music could function both as background and foreground, it had a very utilitarian value. As a result, the U.K. press, seeing no traces of punk in this, hated it. You know, they, they totally wrote this band off, but man, I went to see them once on a tour, and I remember hearing the first few minutes of the first song, and I go, I've never heard a sound as deep and rapturous as this. I felt like I was being enveloped in a cocoon of guitars, and it was a really wonderful, rapturous feeling. Now, they also incorporated acoustic instruments, which you didn't hear a lot in in shoegaze in a song like Richard. You get that beautiful atmospheric backdrop but also with acoustic instruments. Shed his life. on, Halstead starts moving completely in the ambient direction. By the time of their last record, Pygmalion in 1995, it was essentially a Halstead solo record that was basically all ambient atmosphere. The Eno influence had completely taken over to beautiful effect, but meanwhile the band was completely written off. You, you listen to a track now like Shine and you get those distant female vocals, those pulsing guitars. It's the embodiment of the ambient approach to shoegaze.
2: Desire to marry rock drive with a certain kind of otherworldly ambience is what carries shoegaze into the present moment. Certainly, a lot of the young bands that are drawing their sonic influence from this era they never saw any of the shoegazer bands Mm -hmm. live I mean I'm starting to feel like an old man right when we talk (laughs) about grunge and shoegaze as nostalgia so there's an idea that's being uh, brought forward I I wouldn't say that it's slavish imitation just look at the diversity of so called new gaze or shoegazer revival bands Mm -hmm. Beach House and Crystal Castles sound nothing like Blonde Redhead and Deer Hunter Tame Impala and Silver Sun Pickups don't sound anything like Cloud Nothings or Yuck they're all very individual bands that are all taking
0: one element of shoegazer no doubt jim i think the records really hold up and you can hear it in the way these new bands are incorporating some of those sounds into what they're doing today you know i'd add the big pink to that list a place to bury strangers besnard lakes who we had on this show a few years ago fantastic example of updating that sound explosions in the sky the warlocks mew The Pains of Being Pure at Heart, Serena Manesh out of uh, Norway, and Kinski, to just name a few that are still influenced by this sound today. The place to end, Greg, might be the fact, and I'll use his name for the last time.
2: (laughs) What Brian Eno said about the Velvet Underground is equally true of these shoegazer bands. They may not have sold a lot of records in their time, but it sometimes seems like everybody who bought one went out and started a band of their (laughs) own. And that's ultimately a pretty high tribute to any group of musicians. That wraps up our take on shoegaze, but we want to know what you think. Share your thoughts on this musical genre or anything in the rock universe at 888 859 1800. Next up, we'll see what Atlanta hip hop star Big Boy has to offer. That's in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
1: I'm hopping along, still run What's the hopeful and my child?
2: Well, I'm a pickpocket when I design rhymes. Every little step I take like Bob Brown is so profound that when I throw
0: those nouns, we gon' get low, low down until we get backed up. Why? Everything gravy, a tater's mashed up. You know I keep a full plate and a full thing of hot ones throwing weights at an ace. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Kott with Jim DeRigatis, and that is Mama Told Me from the new Big Boy album, Vicious Lies and Dangerous Rumors. Big Boy, otherwise known as Antoine-Andre Patton, has been a member of the Atlanta hip-hop duo OutKast since the 1990s. He's a partner alongside Andre 3000, the group that put out six studio albums. I mean, one of the most important groups, I think, of the last two decades. Hugely inventive, groundbreaking, helped define the sound of that so-called Dirty South hip-hop movement, you know, incorporating elements of funk, rock, soul, experimental music that just broke down all these genre boundaries. Now the group has been fairly quiet in the last decade. Their last official studio album was a double album that came out in 2003 called Speakerbox The Love Below, essentially two solo albums that were put together. And then in 2006 they participated in the Idle Wild soundtrack and they really haven't been collaborating much ever since. So Big Boy came out with a uh, solo album in 2010. Sir Lucius Leftfoot, the son of Chico Dusty, they kind of established him as an artist in his own right, and now he's back with his second solo album, Vicious Lies and Dangerous Rumors. Here's a track from it called Apple of My Eye from Big Boy on Sound Opinions.
1: Creatures' daughters are some of the freakiest ones. They've been deprived of fun, and now they just want to cut loose like everybody else. They're wild and find to find itself, and by the time they do, they barely have nobody left over, feeling empty and alone. Cause the youth is gone, the thrill has
2: been killed. So let the truth be told. Look in the mirror, my dear, and it appears that the eyes are the window to the
1: soul. Oh, give me one reason. Why.
2: That was Apple of My Eye by Big Boy from his second solo album, Vicious Lies and Dangerous Rumors. You know, I think it was easy to see in Outcast. Big Boy as more of the sort of southern street slanger and Andre 3000 as the futuristic genre-warping music maniac. But in the solo careers so far, Big Boy giving us these two records, he's really been incredibly inventive and all over the map musically. This, to me, is inspiring. It is hip-hop at its best. It is trying to push the envelope. It's not a perfect record. I'm not saying that. Big Boy has played a lot of big rock festivals in the last couple of years. He has met a lot of indie rockers. He is working with some of them on this record. We have collaborations with Waves. We have upstate New York indie pop duo Fantagram, whose vocalist Sarah Bartell is singing on three of these songs. We also have a lot of more traditional hip-hop cameos. T.I., Ludacris, Kid Cudi, ASAP Rocky. It's hit and miss. Depending on the quality of the guest, there are some brilliant moments here and some inspired pairings. The music, I think, is consistent throughout in just trying to bring different forces into that classic outcast southern hip-hop sound. I I wish at times Big Boy had more to say. I think sometimes he's not talking about much of anything at all. And on the other other hand, there there are some just inspired Brilliant moments where he's talking about how much he loves looking at a baby in a onesie. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow, I wish you would focus just a little bit more. But for anyone who's cared at all about Outkast or about artists who are still trying to push the genre boundaries in hip hop, this is definitely a burn it record, at least. You have to hear this record.
0: Jim, This record just illustrates for me how much I miss OutKast. I mean, these two guys need each other. Andre 3000 and Big Boy, could you just figure out a way to get together and make another record, please? It's become clearer and clearer that
2: they balance their worst impulses, right? Well,
0: well, it's true, and I mean, they they do need each other. Big Boy is definitely working Andre 3000 territory on his two solo records. He's getting into that quirkiness, as you said. He was kind of known as the sort of down-to-earth party guy. On the th- on the Outcast records here he's definitely experimenting a lot more. But again, it, you know it doesn't all work. The first solo record was filled with guest stars. The hit and miss ratio was a little bit more on the hit side. Here I think he's got some huge misses. You know the track lines with ASAP Rocky and Fantagram. Shoes for running with B O B and Waves is just a, a total loss. I think when he hews closest to tradition. You know, The Echoes of Outcast and Apple of My Eye or She Hates Me with Kid Cudi, or In the A, where he just does that straight-up Dirty South hip-hop with T.I. and Ludacris. You know, that's when he's at his absolute best. It's a Burn It record for me. So a double Burn It for Big Boy's Vicious
2: Lies and Dangerous Rumors. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, good stuff. We've
0: got an in-studio visit
2: from Amy Mann. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. Our assistant producer is Annie Minhoff. Our intern is Griffin Waterman. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori southside Malatia, is always staring at those New Balance shoes of his. sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
3: New messages. Gentlemen, Bill Ford calling from San Francisco, and I couldn't agree more on the Alicia Keys review. If Alicia Keys is hands on her projects, perhaps her hands should be off, because uh, her songs do nothing but meander... And it seems to me that you could sew about five of her songs together to make one good song. It's She's so frustrating because her potential is, as you said, so high. And I'm waiting for something to happen, and it just doesn't happen. He says... Thank you, guys. Talk to you later. Hi, Jim and Greg. Uh, This is Jason from Houston, Texas. I just got around to listening to the episode with The Divine Fits, which was uh, a great interview. I liked hearing that a lot. At the end of the interview, you invited listeners to submit our own ideas for supergroups that we'd like to see together. And Immediately, the first group of people that came to mind uh, could either be a horrific disaster or possibly the best supergroup ever, and that would be to put together Brian Burton, a.k.a. Danger Mouse, Beck Hansen, a.k.a. Beck, and Jack White, a.k.a. the ex-Mr. Meg White. Uh, all three have significant producer experience as well as being musicians, as, as you know, and I believe they've all collaborated with each other separately, but never all together. I fully acknowledge that putting the three of these guys together might not produce a great result, but it would be fun to see what they came up with. So thanks for the thought experiment. I love the show. Bye. I just started to some people today The can trash behind your
1: back all day
3: Hey guys, this is Eric calling from Brooklyn. I just want to thank you for your episode about supergroups, uh, especially the Golden Palominos. I have to say, two of my favorite artists in the 90s were R.E.M. and Richard Thompson, and when I found out that that Michael Stipe and Richard had appeared on a song together it was it was like two rock gods coming together to create this genius work of art i just couldn't believe it that one song boy go i mean that that will always have a special place in my heart keep up the awesome work guys thanks a lot
1: boy, you trouble boy, you get can't take the heat. Sitting on home a hurricane you to your
3: Hi, Jim and Greg. It's Eric Schott from London Grove, Pennsylvania. and just listened to the program on
0: Supergroups.
3: I like the show's concept, and most of your choices were spot on. Anyway, I felt certain you were going to end up in 2007 in what I thought was a supergroup, the good, the bad, and the queen. Quite a pedigree. you got Tony Allen from Africa 70, Paul Simonon from The Clash, Simon Tong from The Verve, and Damon Albarn from Blur and Gorillaz. It's just one self titled album with one track, Herculean, is certainly on my Desert Island list. Well, thanks for the show always, and have a happy new year. Bye bye. <music>